This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. seven days that changed the world and we are up until Thursday so that is the Last Supper and it's the eve of Jesus death so we're going to go on a journey this morning of the Last Supper there's so much that happens on that Thursday night we could do a whole sermon series which means I'd be here for hours or for the next three weeks so to save you from that we're just going to go through a few key highlights significant events that occurred on that Thursday night Okay, so we are going to look at these three significant events that teach us about this poured out God. That's the name of where we're going to say this poured out God. We're going to go through two Gospels to try and gain this full picture of events. If you read across the Gospels, not all of them cover all events from all perspectives, so we're kind of dipping in and out of a couple today. So if you think about the speed camera, an idea that I nicked off a very well-known preacher in this church, a speed camera, something that's ready to watch you and catch you out slow you down, control you, limit you, punish you. Uh, Is that your view of God? Someone that controls, limits and punishes you, stops your fun. Big Brother is always watching. I wonder whether on Sundays when we know he's watching, we can perform, we pray out, we have big demonstrative worship, we confess, we resolve to live it out again and then we quickly forget the cameras and still rolling and we wander off into our weeks. Big Brother's always watching. Is that how you feel about God? The tooth fairy I thought was brilliant when I found out. Some people think God's like the tooth fairy. Flits in and out, very ineffective in our lives, and in fact completely imaginary to most people. Okay, so they're all images of what you could think God is like. Someone who punishes, controls, always watching, or actually could be completely imaginary. In fact, most people do seem to see God as a speed camera, and this is another great quote that I stole. This is a Richard Dawkins quote. I think it'd be rather awful if the existence of God were true. You'd never have a waking or sleeping moment where you weren't being watched, controlled, supervised by some celestial entity from the moment you were conceived to the moment you die. It'd be like living in North Korea. Richard Dawkins always controlled. Isn't it a bit sad, though, that that's the way the world kind of perceives God, that he's a fun stealer, he watches you, he controls you, we're all puppets. Of course, we know hopefully that isn't true okay so back to the the journey of the cross the seven days we are going to be jumping into Luke 22 if you've got your Bibles with you here we are on the Thursday night the famous last supper Jesus knows that he is about to return to the father in the most horrific way possible just on that next day for me I was thinking that's incredible in itself there he is sat with his dearest friends knowing he's going to die tomorrow And we see in these passages, as this kind of unfolds this morning, he's still teaching, he's modelling, and he's pouring himself out for others, even with that thought constantly, tomorrow, I'm going to die. The human side of him, thinking he's going to die, is quite a huge thing. Can you imagine that for yourself? Obviously, the God in him knows he's going back to be with his father, which is the most amazing thing. But still, he's got to pass from, from that earthly state to that heavenly state. 
The passages we're going to read are nothing about what God can get from this situation, what Jesus can get knowing he's going to die. He's not saying, oh, I'm dying tomorrow. Please love me. Please tell me how great I am. Tell me you'll miss me. Perhaps some of these things you might want to hear before you die, like where, am I, where are my highlights? What, 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 what have I can celebrate in my life? Where did I do good things? Equally, he's not outwardly miserable. He's not sad or reflective. He's not anxious or worried, or so it seems. When we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, it's slightly different as we see his heartbreak when he appeals to his God, Father in heaven. His only concern in that moment in the Last Supper is that he wants to impart to the Twelve as much as he can. He wants to train them and model to them so that they can set the world alight with the Father's love and good news with their lives when he is gone. Okay, let's jump into Luke 22 together. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Now, I don't know about you, but when I started reading this passage and I was talking to Howard about it, saying, oh, we know this already. We do this passage every week at church. We have communion. What's the new thing? And he said, let's stop trying to look for the new thing in the passage. Let's just read it for what it actually is. So this, this picture is Jesus giving himself away. He's saying, before I suffer, before I go back to my father, this is my body given for you. He's mirroring what is to come on the cross the next day. The cup of wine, he says, is a new promise. It's a covenant between you and I. My blood on the cross, it is poured out for you. I wonder how much after the Friday the disciples thought, oh, that's really what he meant. His body was literally broken on the cross like the bread. His blood was literally poured out on the cross, just like the cup of wine. I wonder if they had those light bulb moments. And I wonder how much more today we can understand the significance of that, knowing what we know about Good Friday. Is that the picture of this speed camera grasping, controlling God? He is a poured out God, giving himself away. He's given for you and for me that sacrificial lamb. The disciples could never know how significant that was going to be. And following that moment, Jesus then drops that big bombshell about someone around here is going to betray me. Now, if you were Judas, you're probably starting to feel a bit rumbly in the tummy. He's a bit nervous thinking, ha, he already knows. He knows it's me. We also see then that, as he says, someone around the table is going to uh, betray me. Um, You know, woe to the person that does that. And then they start to think, well, it's not going to be me. Well, it wouldn't be me. You can just imagine their quarrelling scene. Well, it's not, I, I would never betray you. I've never thought a bad thing thought in my life. Don't be ridiculous. It's not me. And then the other one says, well, it's not me. Well, why wouldn't it be you? Do you think you're better than us? And then quickly this uh, argument escalates. And I still think, I wonder how Judas feels, because he's like, that's me. I know that's me. 
It's not the first time that the 12 have got into this quarrel about um, I'm better than you, this type of debate. We see this in the Gospel of Mark in chapters 9 and 10. Jesus is repeatedly trying to teach them some childlike humility and how the greatest should become the servant. In Mark chapter 10, James and John request to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. That does not go down very well with the rest of the disciples. So if we just jump into that passage in Mark, it says, When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you should be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and not be served. He was the highest ranking person, Jesus, the Son of God. He had all power and authority under his hands, and yet he's repeatedly saying, I'm going to serve you. You should serve each other. Don't look up to me. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not this high-powered leader you think I am. I'm here to serve you, and you must serve each other. And then he gives his all, obviously. He gives his life. If we jump back into Luke, we see that despite these repeated lessons, we can see the disciples have learned absolutely nothing. On the eve of the Lord's death, it struck me that they never like, um, can we just go back a minute? Did you say you were going to die? Did you say you're not going to be here? What is that about? Why, why aren't we talking about how sad that is? Why are we still listening to you with the body and blood? No one seems to interrupt Lord in, the Lord and say, can you tell us a bit more about that? That might be what perhaps I would do. But on the eve of the Last Supper... When they're being told they're going to lose Jesus, they start to argue. Luke 24, they start to argue. A dispute also arose among them as to which was going to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, we've just read this passage, the king, uh, the king of the Gentiles lords it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call them benefactors. But you are not to be like that, Israel. Instead, you're not to be like that, G1. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on, my th- on the thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." So again, Jesus is saying, you're not getting it. You're not here to argue over who is the greatest. He could have said, chill out everyone, I'm the greatest. Don't worry about that. You don't need to argue. I'm already here doing it. But he's not. He's saying, you are to give yourselves like children to each other. Those who are the lowest are the greatest. Who is greater than the one at the table or the one who serves? They're all grasping for position, not Jesus. When I read this, I can be a bit guilty of judging the disciples, thinking, you are a bunch of idiots. How many times does Jesus have to tell you the same message before you get it? And then I think, oh, (laughs) in the 20-odd years of being a Christian, the amount of time Jesus is still teaching me the same things in different ways is quite phenomenal. He's shown the miracles, he's invested time in them. Fancy them trying to vie for position for him, grasping onto where they fit in that group in the world. Then I think, "I, I still don't get it. Jesus has to remind me and teach me and show me things every single day. 
I find myself grasping for position at work. I find myself trying to get the upper hand in a conversation. I want my voice to be heard in a group. I find myself holding on to my diary, holding on to my money, holding on to my Sunday mornings, holding on to my time. Clearly, I've not learned about this servanthood that Jesus was telling us. He is this poured out God. He took the bread and wine and declared, this is my body given for you. My blood is poured out for you. And he says in Luke, for who is greater than the one at the table or the one who serves? I am among you as one who serves. If he's seeing it and doing it, we should be seeing it and we should be doing it. So what does Jesus do after this quarrel breaks out when they're saying I'm better than your better, my dad's bigger than your dad? Well, he says, he has the utmost patience. He is the ultimate teacher who I long to learn from. He says no. He shows them another way. How many times in maths lessons at school I've tried to teach kids to tell the time? It's the worst thing ever to try and teach kids to tell time. Never do it as an observation lesson. It always falls flat. So you try it in so many different ways and you just go back around and all the different ways until eventually the penny hopefully drops or they move to secondary school and you think that's not my problem anymore. But it's kind of the same with Jesus. How many different ways does he have to teach the disciples these different things? The different stories he uses, the different ways he's kind of depicting this till it slots in in all of our brains. Women are be his disciples. Women are listening and think, mm, I haven't got it in that way, but I understand it in this way. We have to keep going back and learning. So, further on, we're going to jump now into John's account. Another way, a fami- another really familiar passage from the Last Supper where Jesus is still trying up until his last breathing minute on the earth, trying to teach the disciples what it means to be a poured out God and what it means to give himself away. So we go to John 13. And we jump in at verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That sounds quite simple, doesn't it? He just got a towel and he just casually washed their feet. Jesus here is letting his actions speak louder than the words. And actually, for the disciples, it would have been a real dumbfounding moment. Jesus must have been thinking, how else can I show them what I really mean? He was so serious about them truly understanding this poured out life that he took off his outer garments, he put on a towel, and from the king at the table, he became the servant. He rises from the table, washes their feet, an example of how they are to love and serve one another. Washing feet is this ultimate act of humility, intimacy, and hospitality, particularly in that culture. But can you imagine if someone came to your house at dinner and did that? Like, oh, hang on, can I just take your socks and shoes off? Let me just wash your feet. I was talking to a very dear friend about this passage, and she was saying to me, I still feel a bit weird about anybody wanting to wash my feet. There's something spiritually in that. Like, I don't know many people who'd be like, yeah, God, just, yeah, wash my feet. I don't mind. Most people are like, oh, can you not touch my feet? Even though they're clean and my nails look great, I've had a shower, can you not touch my feet? It's just a bit weird. There's this incredibly humbling thing about this act that Jesus did, even for us today. In verse 5, it occurs to me how John could have written, he just got some water and just, you know, got a bowl. He actually says, he poured out the water. And I think there's significance in that. He's saying to them again, he's pouring himself out. He poured out the water. He's emphasising that sense of Jesus giving himself away. This pouring out, this poured out God. 
Verse 6 says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? That would definitely be me. Uh, I think just do this guy. That's fine. Don't, don't wash mine. And Jesus replied, you don't realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, no, you're not washing my feet, says Peter. Peter's really astonished and anguished and angered by Jesus' actions. It's inconceivable to him that the Messiah could wash his feet. Foot washing in those times was reserved, was reserved for Gentile slaves, women, children, not Jewish men, and not for people who weren't family, not even for Jewish slaves. Peter wouldn't allow Christ to assume that role of a servant. He had such reverence for him. He was like, my feet are out of bounds to you. Well, then the Lord says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. That is quite some line. Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And then Simon's all like, I'm all in. Wash me clean. Wash every part of me. And Jesus is like, that's not necessary, love. I'll just wash your feet. But still, that understanding that actually, unless we let the Lord wash us, metaphorically wash our feet, wash us clean daily, in those places where it's grimy and gross and you don't want him to go, unless we do that, we can't have a part of him, a part in him. Jesus here is modelling this poured out act of servanthood to the disciples, but he's also quite literally washing, us, watch, washing them clean. That is what he does for us. He takes the most unattractive parts of us, the places where we don't want anyone to go. That question when someone asks you in your three, what's the last thing you want to ask me about today? I hate when that comes up in our three. Someone says, which, which part of your life do you not really want us to go today? Because that's exactly where we're going to go. That's what the Lord says. I want to go to that place where you're feeling shame and you're feeling filth and you're feeling like I wouldn't want to go there because I love you that much. I want to wash you clean in that place. He wants to go there and clean it. He comes to gently cleanse and heal. Washing your feet isn't an aggressive act. It might be a bit tickly and a bit gross, but it's not aggressive. Is soft and gentle and quite warm. Hopefully the water's warm. So Simon's saying, really, really, my feet, feet are really gross. We really want to say, God, you really want to cleanse me? You want to cleanse that part of me? You really want to go to that place, that place that I've perhaps hidden from you? In verse 12, Jesus continues, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and servant, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I, what I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So more than just letting the Lord wash those places or letting Jesus wash their feet, he's saying this is more than that act. This is for you to do. Go and do the same. Be a servant, wash each other clean, love each other, share yourselves, pour yourselves out for one another like I am pouring myself out for you. And the icing on the cake, you'll be blessed if you do this. Don't do it to be blessed, but you will be blessed by doing it. He's yet again reminding them, if you want to honour God, go low, humbly serve. What I have done for you, you do for someone else. No one is greater than anyone else. And moreover, by serving and pouring yourself out, you too will be blessed. There is blessing to be had in this. Pour yourselves out for one another. Always outgive each other. When Mark and I got married 12 years ago, we were a child child brides um the best piece of marriage advice we were ever given um some really lovely friends of ours said 
always outgive each other and always say thank you. And I have to say that's probably blessed us immeasurably in our marriage, that we try and live in a place of gratitude for each other, we try not to take each other for granted, and we always try and outgive each other. The people who are married, however long you've been married for, top tips. Always try and outgive each other. Nobody wants to empty the dishwasher, nobody wants to change the baby's nappy, nobody wants to hoover, but if we always try and give each other and do those jobs for each other, you live in this amazing place of gratitude and not grasping. Wives and husbands, pour yourselves out for each other. Mothers, fathers, pour yourselves out for your children like you've not got a choice. It's exhausting. (laughs) They just take it either way. (laughs) Friends, neighbours, G1 communities, pour yourselves out for one another. God first church, pour yourself out for one another. It's so simple, isn't it? I pour myself out, I do stuff, I'm on the rotor. What stops us from living these ultimately poured out lives is that we are inherently selfish people. I thought I was quite a giving, unselfish person, and then I got married and realised, oh, (laughs) there's some work to be done. (laughs) And then I thought, I've learned quite a lot, I'm quite unselfish. And then we had Thea, and I thought, wow, kids take a lot. I can't just do what I want all the time. I have to take care of this lovely little thing. And then we had Ezra, and I realised I'm still selfish and have so much to learn about my time. And it's even balancing those children and a husband and a home and a job and, and then the calling the Lord has put on me. There is a lot to be balanced and ultimately a lot to try and give away, unclench my grasping hands and try and pour myself out. I constantly strive and have to strive to live this poured out life, but we live in this me first world, meet my needs world, meet my needs church, wash my feet first. I need this. It's not a case of meet my needs, it's a case of whose needs can I meet. Imagine if we lived in a world where we all felt like, whose needs can I meet? Who in the church, who needs their needs meet? Who can I meet? And if we were all trying to meet each other's needs... I think we'd live in a wholly more satisfied place. Please don't think that I have got in in this any way sewn up. I'm a hugely selfish person. I often find myself getting frustrated at being asked to do things or to clean up or to, you know, live this poor life. It is exhausting. But I often have to ask myself, what does my diary look like? Am I being open-handed with my time? Where am I invested Do I just want to be at home with my cosy family with the doors closed so we can have a bit of a rest and watch the Winter Olympics, please, Lord? Did you know the Paralympics are on? That was a real treat when we found out they are on for the next 10 days because we love the Olympics. Um, That's a side note. (laughs) Where am I invested? What does my bank balance say? Am I grasping onto my money? Because, Lord, we don't have very much. There is freedom in opening your hands and giving money away, whatever that looks like for you. What do I know about my neighbours and colleagues and their lives? Am I pouring myself out for my neighbours, my friends, my G1C, my friends at work that I'm, no, I'm not with at the moment? Am I pouring myself out in all my different relationships? Planning this preach has been like having a giant mirror on myself and I often find what the Lord asks me to preach on is something I usually need to learn myself. So I was asking him, well then what holds us back from this poured out life? You've modelled it to us so well in the Gospels. What, poor, what, what stops me? Well, the implications of a poured out life are, is that there's a cost. It costs you to give yourself away, to pour yourself out. 
and it costs us to put others first. It takes time, energy, face, money, discipline, love, patience, energy, again. It costs us to be disciplined. But then I look at Jesus and realise and remember that it cost him everything. So then I ask the Lord, well then how do we go about this poured out life, God? I understand it's in the Bible, I understand how I need to do it, but how am I going to go about it? And he said, we need to live in community. We need to constantly share and give and model these poured out lives. We need to be a metaphorical foot-washing church. Don't worry, we're not going to make it like this new thing, like you come into church and we wash your feet. That's, that's not on the agenda. But ultimately, and this is the thing this morning, we need to go to the giver. We need to go before the one who gave it all. He who is our greatest teacher, leader, companion, saviour and friend. We must come before Christ and allow him to pour his spirit on us because if he's not pouring into you, how on earth are you going to pour yourself out? We must allow him to pour into us so that we can then pour out to others. I think it was Paul who did a great talk on Father's Day last year. Paul, he poured a jug into a bowl and that overflowed into another bowl and he's like, this is a spirit pouring into us and you can then pour out into others. If there's nothing going in, there's very little coming out. And if there's only a bit going in, we tend to want to hold it for ourselves. So we need to go to the giver. We can't be poured out without him being poured in. It's a very simple message this morning, but a really hard task. So we're going to start this morning just by going to the giver and allowing him to pour his spirit into us this morning so that we can start to be even more poured out like he is modelled to us. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.